Hello and welcome to Finding Truth Matters with Dr Andrew Corbett. It's easy to be distracted by false teaching when it's so close to what you already know to be true. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament had a tricky task. He was in chains, in prison and having to address issues of false teaching in the Colossian church. Getting caught up in religious practices, the Colossians had lost sight of the truth of who Jesus was and Paul sought to restore them to right thinking. Tonight, Dr Corbett continues his journey through Colossians with a look at baptism. We're going to have a look continuing to have a look at Paul's epistle to the Colossians. So let's pray. Holy Spirit, we need your help. Come and open our eyes and help us to understand your word. Help us to see things in your word that we need to see and we need to know. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to be looking from Colossians chapter 2, verse 8, down to verse 15. I remind you that this epistle was written by Paul to a church He'd never been to. This was prompted because the pastor of the church at Coloss, Colossae, a man by the name of Epaphras, had become so concerned about what was happening in the church that he just simply didn't know what to do. He didn't know how to correct it, didn't know how to address it, didn't know how to deal with it. So Epaphras takes his concerns to the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul at this time was fairly easy to find because he was in prison. He was in prison in a place called Caesarea. And so Epaphras went to speak with Paul in prison and it turns out that the only way he could really have a a quality conversation with Paul was to become a fellow prisoner with him, which I guess would lead to one or two deep conversations since you've got no one else to talk to. So Epaphras voluntarily became a prisoner along with Paul and Paul refers to this later on in the epistle where he calls Epaphras my fellow prisoner. So Epaphras is also referred to in the closing chapter of Colossians as the pastor of the church, the minister of the church at Colossae. What was happening at Colossae? What was happening there was there were people that had come in and had brought what's called a syncretism of religious ideas. Now, we say that in today's culture, a syncretism of ideas, and if you know what that means, which is essentially this, you take a bit of this religion, you take a bit of this religion, Take a bit over here and a bit over here and you kind of blend it all together, put it in the Kenwood and out comes a syncretism of religion. So you've got bits and pieces of ideas. What were some of the ideas that they had? One of the, the ideas that had crept into the church there was the idea of Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Gnost, uh, the Greek word gnosis means knowledge. And Gnosticism is the idea that if you have certain knowledge, special knowledge, you'll be you'll have a closer connection with God. You'll have more brownie points with God if you just get this, this right knowledge. Gnosticism also taught that anything to do with the flesh, that is, your human body, is intrinsically evil. And this world that you can see, touch, taste and feel defiles people. And the sooner we can, we can get out of this world, the better. And so these Gnostics taught 
that God came down in the form of Jesus, but it was only ever an illusion that Jesus looked like a real man. Because surely God wouldn't stoop to become flesh. Because flesh is evil and dirty and wicked and defiling, so these Gnostics taught. And now that kind of leads to the, the, a, a Gnostic ethic. Ethics is how you behave. And the Gnostic ethics said, therefore, because this world is intrinsically evil and naughty and dirty and sinning and defiling, and if you touch it, you'll become corrupt and you'll go to hell and you'll dangle upside down from your toes for eternity with the flames of hell licking at your hair. They didn't actually say that. I just said that for dramatic appeal. I was expecting a few 17th century, but I didn't get any. Anyway. They said you shouldn't eat certain things. In fact, if you don't eat at all, that's probably better for you spiritually. You shouldn't touch certain things. And there are definitely certain people you shouldn't touch because they will defile you because they're dirty, spiritually dirty. And these Gnostics taught that if you really want to please God, there are certain special days that you must keep as holy. And if you do these things, you just might make it into heaven. Oh, good. The problem with the Gnostic gospel, and you hear it today, it's, it's called religion. Do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this, and you just might, you just might have God forgive you of your sins. What was one of the other ideas that was invading that church at Colossae? It was Judaism on steroids. Judaism on steroids sounds like, yes, you need Jesus to be a Christian, but you also need to be a Jew first. So therefore, even if you weren't born a Jew, every man should be circ <coughs> circumcised. <laughs> and you must keep the laws, especially the laws of the Sabbaths. And if you just think one day a week is a Sabbath, you don't understand the, the teaching of the Sabbath under Judaism. There were special new moon festivals and there were all these things that were special, particularly holy days, according to these, these Jewish Christians who, were, who became known as Judaizers because, you see, they didn't, they didn't become Christians. They became people who said, yes, we can see Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, we can see that Jesus is the Saviour. But we still think we need to keep all these laws, be circumcised, keep the feasts, don't eat certain food, keep certain days holy, and put your faith in Jesus. Blend the two together. And so Epaphras, he was, how do I deal with this? These guys sound convincing. Their arguments sound really good. How do I deal with this? It, but Epaphras knew 
it just, I can't put my finger on it, but it just doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound like the, the central message of Christianity. What's the one word that sums up the central message of Christianity? Surely it's, if you're going to pick a word, in that, the top three words that you might pick is the word grace, isn't it? Christianity is fundamentally about grace. What, what is grace? It is God, in this instance, giving you something you don't deserve. And the Christian ethic is an ethic of live your life gracefully. When Jesus said, if someone hits you in one cheek, make sure you don't hit them back. Is that what Jesus said? That's not what he said. He said, show that person grace. How did he say it? He said, bless those who despitefully use you. There's a story that I heard at the start of the year of, a, of a, an office in America where the, the, uh, the office was told that a man was coming from a different division to join their, their office staff. And uh, the, the lady who was telling the story says that when she was growing up as a teenage girl, she was very confused about her sexuality, very confused. And uh, she came from a broken home, didn't have a close connection with her dad, had a bit of a, an estranged relationship with her mum, and this just added to her confusion. And this girl, now a woman, was telling the story that through her teenage years she was taken under the, the wing of some very politically active lesbians and they convinced her that she must be a lesbian. And she said, well, I must be. I, I, I'm confused. I must be. And so this girl became a politically active and sexually active lesbian. So here she is, politically active and all the rest of it, working this office, and she, she's a militant lesbian. And, and the guy that was going to transfer into her office, they told her about him because he was well-known throughout the company as one of these stark, raving, mad, can't-shut-em-up, Bible-thumping Christians. And they thought it best that they warned this lady that this guy was coming. <laughs> so the guy comes in, and the first thing that struck this woman was that he was somewhat normal. Go figure. And... <laughs> He, he, he didn't preach. He didn't get on his desk and say, repent, you dirty sinners. He didn't do any of that. In fact, he did his job, and apparently he did it quite well. And all the time, this, this woman's on guard against this guy, and she's constantly criticising him to the other staff members, calling him a hypocrite, calling him judgmental, calling him all kinds of intolerant names. Interesting, isn't it? She's judging him and she's calling him judgmental. Well, that's just a side point. And here, this was going on for a few weeks. And then in the tea room where they were having their morning tea, he's just there having his morning tea. And she just bursts out with this question. What do you think God expects? And he's like, I'm not quite sure where that came from. I was in the middle of eating a donut and drinking a cup of coffee. 
And he just said, well, what, what do you mean? She says, well, what is it with the Ten Commandments anyway? Who does God think he is? The guy put his donut down, put his coffee to the side, and he said, I think you misunderstand the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are not so much do this, don't do this. The Ten Commandments is a map that shows us in life where the landmines are. And God has given us this map because he doesn't want us to blow ourselves up. She was ready for a fight. And she heard that response. And the steam went right out of her argument. She wasn't expecting that. She wasn't expecting this man to tell her that God has a right to say what's right and wrong because he loves us. She couldn't get that comment out of her head for the next few weeks. The Ten Commandments is God's map for where the landmines are in life. The more she thought about it, the more she realised what a wrong concept of God she had. Eventually, she went to this guy and said, tell me more. And he told her about a God who loves. And he loves so much that he sent Jesus Christ to die for her, to give her the opportunity to have her eyes open so that she can see where the landmines are. Eventually, she went to church with him and uh, he arranged for a female friend to, to befriend her in church and she went to church for about six months, all the while still practising her lifestyle. And she says that it was after about six months that she said her eyes were opened. And she could see, not that she needed to change from being lesbian to heterosexual, but she needed to change from being someone lost to someone found. In fact, the other thing just wasn't an issue, but as she gave her life to Christ, all her priorities changed. And the things that she had put before surrendering to God, she saw what they really were. Now, tell that story because sometimes we think someone's issue is something when in fact it rarely is that. It's often something far more fundamental at the root. And here when Epaphras told Paul, I'm, Paul, I'm dealing with these Gnostics who've got this kind of higher knowledge thing happening and I'm, I'm dealing with these people who are Jewish Christians and they say you must, even the Gentiles, you must become Jews, then Christians, so you can become Jewish Christians. And these, I said these people became known as Judaizers. You have to become a Jew first, then a Christian. And Paul, I, they sound so convincing. They even use the Bible. They, they, they confuddle me. I don't know what to say, Paul. How do I deal with this? Because I just know overall it just doesn't sound right. It doesn't sound like grace. And, and so Paul writes Colossians. And here's the interesting thing. Paul doesn't immediately address those issues. Immediately. He, he does address them, but not immediately. Here's what Paul says. You guys all have the same problem. And your, your, your problem is this, you don't understand who Jesus is. 
Because if you understood who Jesus is, we wouldn't be having this conversation. If you understand who Jesus is, and he says in chapter 1 that Jesus is the creator of all things. Colossians 1, 17, 18, 19. And I know the Jehovah's Witnesses don't like that because they say, no, Jesus Christ himself was created. Therefore, how could he be the creator of all things? So in the Jehovah's Witness Bible, they insert a word and you can tell they insert it because they put it in square brackets. Just when next time they come knocking at your door, get them to open this one up, perhaps Colossians 1, 17, 18. And they put this one word in the text. It's not in the text. They put it in the text because they say that can't be right. And this is the word they put in. Jesus Christ is the creator of all, here's the word, other things. You see, if Jesus Christ is the creator of all things, that means he's uncreated. And it also means he's God. And it also means he's supreme. And it also means he's Lord. And Paul sums it up by saying this, Jesus Christ is head of all things. And Paul says, if you get that, you'll get it. You'll get it. You'll get what the gospel's all about. You'll realise that when Jesus Christ died on the cross, it wasn't an angel dying on the cross. It wasn't a man dying on the cross. It wasn't someone with a good idea dying on the cross. It wasn't someone trying to set an example to die on the cross. It was God giving up his life for us. And when you get that, Everything changes. So now come with me to verse 8. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. This is what it says. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits or principles of the world, and not according to Christ. You see, the Christian is someone who's been taken captive by Christ. If you haven't struggled as a Christian over obeying Christ, you're probably not a Christian. If you haven't come to that point where you know this is what I want to do, but this is what Jesus wants me to do, and I know I really should do this, then chances are you don't get it. Chances are you're not a Christian. We need to be taken captive by Christ. Sounds like someone conquering us, doesn't it? It sounds like someone almost military language, conquering us. So here's my first question to you. Has Jesus Christ conquered you? That's the question. Have you allowed God to conquer you? See, here the Apostle Paul throughout this epistle is going to say, because you don't get who Jesus is, you are committing the greatest cosmic treason possible. And that is this you are putting other things above Christ. And what's the word for that? He uses it in chapter 3 and verse 5. He calls it idolatry. And if you look at Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, you'll see things that you probably wouldn't consider to be idols. In a few months, I'm going to India with a few people from this church. We're bracing ourselves because we know that we're going into a culture that has zero... 0.0001% Christians. That's not many. Into a region that has 600 million people 
crammed into something not much bigger than the size of Tasmania. And we're going into this region and idolatry is obvious. But that's the problem. We live in an equally idolatrous society now. It's just not as obvious. Do you see the things Paul lists in Colossians 3.5 as idolatrous? Things which he calls sexual immorality. You hear people talk about this idol all the time. It's my right to be sexually active however, whoever, with whoever, with whatever, however I like. That's the language of an idolater. Impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. I probably committed that one the other week when I went into Myers. Covetousness. And Kim said, look at this on the fifth floor. Kim said, look at this massage insert you can put in a chair now. And I just thought, uh, she said, yeah, go and sit in it. So I sat in it. She pushed the button. It began to massage my shoulders. I sat there and I started to go, (laughs) and then it comes down to the back. (laughs) And I'm thinking, I want one. (laughs) Now, I only say that to confess to you my sin. That's called covetousness. (laughs) And that's an idol. And it's got to go. <laughs> oh dear. Oh, stop it. Anyway, back to the message. Here we go. So, <laughs> so the first thing Paul mentions in Colossians 2.8 as being an idol, as something that will distract you from Christ, is this word philosophy. Now this verse has led some Christians to say all philosophy is bad. All philosophy is evil. All philosophy is wrong. But that's not what he's saying. It's not what he's saying. What does the word philosophy mean? Philosophia. Two Greek words. Philo means love. Sophia, wisdom. See, there's someone who knows more than you. But that's right. Sophia means wisdom. Philosophia, philosophy. That's where we get the word from. It means love of wisdom. And there are some Christians who say, we shouldn't do that. You haven't read Proverbs? You're supposed to love, cherish, adore, seek after wisdom. If anybody's supposed to be into philosophy, it should be Christians. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about being taken captive by philosophy. Now, here's a little tip as you read, particularly Colossians, but you'll notice this throughout the Bible. It uses the word and a little bit differently to the way we use it. When Paul says philosophy and empty deceit, that word and often means which is. Do you get that? Philosophy, which is empty deceit. So as you're going through Colossians, anytime you see the word and, just think like a Greek person and maybe just put the word which is and see how it helps you to understand the text. Matthew Henry essentially says this, that there's a type of wisdom... That is empty. And it does, it does detract you from putting your faith and trust in Christ. And Matthew Henry, the 17th, or sorry, the 18th century Presbyterian Bible commentator, says that, that that type of wisdom is one that will detract us from a knowledge of God. And, and that kind of philosophy is bad. Now, empty philosophy is a, is a philosophy 
that dismisses Christ. It makes Christ something other than who he really is. And it also justifies sin. It says you can do whatever you want to do. That's bad. That's empty philosophy. And that's exactly what these teachers were doing in Colossians. Teaching these people a wisdom that would actually dismiss or distract them from from knowing Christ. We get philosophy all the time, don't we? You ever notice the philosophy of Nike? What is it? Just do it. You know, sometimes you get thoughts in your head and the, the, the last philosopher you want to be listening to is Nike. Philosophy. We need to understand what that means. We should, we should love good philosophy. The other, the other word as we go down, according to human tradition. You know, Jesus Christ said this, because of your tradition, you have nullified the word of God. What's happening here? Just as you can take an idea, which is what philosophy is, an idea, philosophy, and you can take that philosophy and make it more important than who Jesus really is, you can also do it with human tradition. You, you, can, you can love any human tradition. And Jesus said there comes a point when that becomes an idol and it makes the word of God of no effect in your life. We need to be really careful. This morning, we're doing things a little bit differently. We want to be careful that we're not so bound to tradition that we're not open to what Christ wants to do. Bound to tradition. Human tradition. When we come to Christ, we surrender our philosophies to Christ. When we come to Christ, we surrender our human traditions to Christ. We should do this. Now, Paul goes on and he comes back to this this primary point. Verse 9. For in him, who's him? Who is it? Christ, Jesus Christ. For in him, the fullness, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Now, I don't know what Jehovah's Witnesses can do with that because that's pretty clear. Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. That's what it says. He is the fullness of deity in the flesh. And he's not just a man filled with the Spirit of God. He is God. Verse 10. And you have been filled in him. And this is the point of Colossians. That your salvation is not a matter of what you do. Your salvation is a matter of who you know. So if this is us, Paul's saying we need, and this is Christ, we need to be in Christ, so that when we stand before God on the day of judgment, God sees Christ, not us. In Him, we need to be in Christ. How are we in Christ? Well, inviting Him to forgive us of our sins, inviting Him to live His life through us, inviting Him to have His way in us, inviting Him to clean out the idols of our lives, inviting Him to have His way in us, worshiping Him. That's how we're in Him. It goes on, um, and this is a really good point. In, in verse 10, you've been filled with him, who is the head of all rule and authority. And we need to honour him like that. Thank God that we're in church on Sunday. You know what we're doing? We're honouring Christ as the head and the ruler and the supreme authority. That's why I don't take Sundays off to do anything other than to worship God. For me, it's really important. And it's not a matter of legalism. It's a matter of liberty. 
Verse 11, notice this. And I think I need to give you a little bit of background about this. In him, you, in him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, I need to explain this. As I mentioned to you before, Paul's talking about these two errors, Gnostics and these Jewish people. Circumcision was how he became a Jew. And Paul is saying, under the old covenant, when you wanted to establish a relationship with God, every man had to be circumcised. Women weren't circumcised because every woman had to be connected to a man who was. So the man became the head of the wife. The man's circumcision, so to speak, covered his wife and his daughters. It was an outward sign that said, we're cutting away this part of the flesh so that we can become more sensitive to God. And Paul's saying, that was how it was done under the old covenant. Under the new covenant, that happens spiritually with what's called salvation, regeneration. Your heart changes. How can you tell if you're a Christian? You probably feel guiltier far more easier than you did before you were a Christian. Because you should have a circumcised heart, a heart that feels far more sensitive. Does that mean every desire you have as a Christian will be good? No, on the contrary. It means you recognise that most of the desires you have, like me in that massage chair at mine, is probably sinful. And you recognise it as such. Now, under the old covenant, it was circumcision. That was the sign of the covenant. How was the covenant celebrated once there was circumcision? Well, it's called Passover. Every year, they would celebrate their covenant with God through Passover. This is the significance of having a relationship with God. Did you know that God only has relationship with people who are in covenant with him? A covenant says, God, I give you all my life, every bit of it. It's yours. I surrender all to you and I will do it for the rest of my life. That's a covenant. And you know what else is a covenant in today's society? Anyone take a stab? Marriage. When I gave my life to Kim, that's exactly what I did. I gave my life to Kim. I didn't give my convenience to her. I gave my life to her. And she did the same for me. So that's a covenant. Now, Paul goes on and says, so the new covenant is about something that takes place spiritually. But then he says this. Have a look at verse 12. Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. What? Where did this come from? Paul is saying that the way you became a Christian was when God spiritually did something in your heart, and under the old covenant, there was an outward display of that. It was circumcision. Under the new covenant, there's a different outward display. What's the different outward display? He says it's water baptism. He says the picture of water baptism is when that has happened to your heart and you say, I believe in Christ. I turn from my sins. And Paul says that's why you were buried in the waters of baptism. That's why... When you were buried, it was, and I, I struggle to use the word, symbolic of you dying to a way of living. And I don't like the word symbolic because it's, a better word's probably spiritual. 
It's spiritually significant of you dying to sin. And as you come up out of the water, Paul says, it's spiritually significant of you spiritually being raised to a new way of living. It's an outward display of the covenant. That means you can say, yes, Jesus, I follow you, I serve you, I love you, but you never form a covenant with him. It's like me saying to Kim, will you marry me? She says, yes, and we never get married. For a Christian who never gets baptised, who never publicly says, I believe Jesus Christ. I believe he's died for my sins. I, I turn my back on my old way of living. I want to live for him now. I want him to live for me. And I believe as a result of that, this world will be a better place. I'm going to live a life that is spiritually empowered. This is the kind of life I'm going to lead. That's water baptism. Now, when I was about, I'm, I just turned 46 the other week. Thank you. And I've been going to church for 46 years and nine months. Because even before I was a Christian, I was going to church and my, and my mum was going to a, a Methodist, a Presbyterian church. And then my dad put his foot down, kind of. He said, I'm British, we go to an Anglican church. So I went to an Anglican church, I got confirmed in the Anglican church. But as a little tacker, just weeks old, months old maybe, I, I don't know, I can't remember it. <laughs> um, I was christened in a church. And I was even, it was even called baptism. But Paul says baptism is burial in water and coming up out of the water to new life. Sprinkling doesn't fit the picture. In fact, nowhere in the New Testament is there sprinkling. Nowhere. And nowhere in the New Testament is there the sprinkling of an infant called baptism. Nowhere. The only baptism the New Testament knows is when a person, same on the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, when they came to Peter and said, what must we do? He said, you must believe, you must repent, and then be water baptised. Now, if you're hearing Paul say, you must be water baptised to become a Christian, you're not hearing it, you're not getting it. Paul's saying, this isn't what you do to become a Christian. This is what you do because you've become a Christian. It's an outward display of the covenant that you've got with God. So water baptism. We read in Acts 19 that there were people that heard the preaching of Jesus and they were baptised. Paul comes along, Acts, chapter, uh, uh, Acts 19, he preaches Jesus and he preaches grace and newness of life and they go, We've never heard this. And he goes, but I thought you guys believed in Jesus. Yeah, we do. Well, I thought you guys told me you were baptised. We were. Why were you baptised? So we could be forgiven of sins and repent. Paul says, that's not what baptism's about. Baptism is, is forming the covenant so that you... You picture and put on the display all to, the, to everybody that you have died to sin and that you have been brought up out of the water, raised to new life. And it says in Acts 19 that he baptised them in the name of Jesus. They were rebaptized, I guess, if you want to look at it that way. So baptism, this is what he's talking about. Now, let's make sure that we understand this. Verse 13, And you who are dead in trespasses... And the uncircumcision of the flesh. See, see what it, the person who's not a Christian, 
See how they're described? They're blind, they can't see, they can't feel right, they don't understand. You could go to church all your life and still not get it. You could go to church all your life and still not be a Christian. You could go to church all your life, die and find yourself at the gates of hell. Church it doesn't make you a Christian. Being born again makes you a Christian. Having the Spirit of God come into you and circumcise your heart and give you a new heart. You become a brand new person. That's what makes you a Christian. That is spiritual. And this is what Paul's saying. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. It's not a thing you can work for. You don't. God forgives. We read on. Verse 14, powerful verse. By cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. Then he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. You see, the result of salvation is that you now are completely forgiven of your sin. Isn't that good news? <laughs> That's got to be the best thing you've heard since breakfast. That has got to be good news. You are forgiven of sin if Christ has forgiven you of your sin. That's simple. So what do you have to do to become a Christian? Well, you don't get it. If you're asking that question, you don't get it. Here's a better question. What has been done so that I can become a Christian? Ah, much better question. Why? Because religion is spelt D-O. Do this, do this, do this. But Christianity is spelt how? D-O-N-E. It's all been done. Christ has done it all. So when the person is water baptised, it's a picture of identifying with Christ. Christ was crucified. He was laid down in the tomb and he resurrected to new life. So when a person is baptised, they're saying, Jesus is my Lord, Jesus is my Saviour. Just as under the old covenant, when you were circumcised, the father of the house was circumcised, the, the boys of the house were circumcised, they were then qualified to partake of Passover. You read through, there was a period there where Israel had a whole generation that wasn't circumcised and they weren't allowed to partake of the Passover meal. Under the new covenant, we have a Passover meal. It's called the Lord's Table, Holy Communion. And it's open to all of those who form the covenant with God. That's why water baptism is so important. Does it save you? No. Can you go to heaven without being water baptised? Absolutely. But should you do it? Yes. Why? Because Jesus commanded it. Jesus commanded it. I was, as I said, I was sprinkled as a little tacker. And then when I was 15, I was in the Anglican church, went through um, confirmation, and it was at that point the Lord opened my eyes. I became a Christian at 15. And I thought, well, that's about it. I kept reading in Romans, which, which had a powerful effect on my life, and I read in Romans 6, verses 1 to 4, and, and, and Paul is writing there, and he says that, that once you become a Christian, you don't sin anymore. Don't you remember you were baptised, he says. And it struck me. And for literally nearly 10 years, I wrestled with that. Until in my mid-20s, I realised when I was sprinkled as a baby, there's no way I could have publicly confessed my faith in Christ. There's no way I could have repented of my sin. There's no way I could have formed a covenant with God. And so in my early 20s, I, I surrendered afresh and said, I need to be publicly baptised, and I was. We hope tonight's discussion has brought some clarity to your thoughts about baptism. 
podcasts and Finding Truth Matters resources, including tonight's program, Colossians Part 6, are available from Lagana Media. You can contact us at PO Box 1143, Lagana, Tasmania 7277, or via the website findingtruthmatters.org. If you'd like to subscribe to the monthly e-newsletter Perspectives, visit findingtruthmatters.org and click subscribe. Dr Corbett is pastor of Lagana Christian Church and president of ICI Theological College Australia. We look forward to having you join us at the same time next week for another Finding Truth Matters.